Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, <clears throat> please turn with me to Genesis 13. Genesis chapter 13. As you're going there, I have a book to give away. I'm going to give a book away every service until Christmas, and then I'll never give a book away until probably the following week. So <clears throat> I have two books, and I was trying to figure out, is this a first service book or is this a first service book? And then I remembered they're both first service books. So um, I have one by Dr. R.C. Sproul, one by Dr. John MacArthur, two of my very favorites. I'm going to go with the MacArthur one for this service on the love of God is the, is the theme or the title of the book. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going John Wayne today. Um, yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, make this super simple. Last person to get an oil change, and I do not mean a transfusion. I mean like a real change of oil in your car. Last person to get an oil change in their vehicle. Really quick, people, you need to change the oil. <laughs> this doesn't, does not turn out well. You got two weeks? Two weeks ago. Anybody within the last couple weeks? Because Max really wants this book, so... You change the whole car. No, 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 it doesn't. All right, Brian, you want to give that to Max? Let's hear it for Max Sherman. Come on now. Yeah, there we go. Good job changing oil, Max. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, Lord, I, um, I thank you for PCBC. I thank you, Father, for the way in which this church family has walked through the oddities of this year. I thank you, Father, that the demeanor of this church remains self-serving or self-sacrificing, others-focused. Father, a heart of worship and a desire to see Jesus magnified in their lives. I praise your name, Lord, that by grace you have so kindly sustained us and kept us in a very, very strange year. And I ask, Lord God, that as we turn our attention to your incredible word today, that by the precious work of your precious Holy Spirit, that he would enlighten us of the truth. And it would have an impact. We'd be different people, different husbands, different wives, different grandparents, different parents, because the Word of God is being applied to us by the Spirit of God for the glory of God. And that, Father, the old man would die more, and the new man would be raised to life, and there would be transformation in who we are as people, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians. God, that it would, this truth would find its way into our heart and into our living. So I pray, Father, that you would, once again, use your word in our lives. We recognize our dependency upon you for that. And I pray, Father, that we have come with sensitive hearts that are prepared for the seed of the word to be sown. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> Don't answer this question. Just think about it. Is wealth... 
a blessing, a curse, or a test? Just think about it. (laughs) I said no answer back there. Is wealth a blessing, a curse, or a test? Now, my dear brother, Mr. Herleman, to my right, answered correctly, but he does not get this book because it's for second service. But the fact is, the answer is yes. And I'm asking that biblically. Not what does the world say, because you go ask the world, is wealth a blessing? Of course it's a blessing. Give me all the stuff you got. Now I'm saying, biblically speaking, is wealth a blessing, a curse, or test? Yeah. As you walk through your Bible, you will find all three exhibited before us, where wealth is given as a blessing. God blesses and, and, and gives to people. You'll also see it as a curse, where the wealth becomes everything. And you see King Nebuchadnezzar say, look at my kingdom. Look how glorious my kingdom is. Isn't this marvelous? And that wealth is his curse because he finds it to be his God. But I would argue far more often than not throughout the scripture, wealth is a test. And maybe a better word, you guys, than test would be opportunity. Wealth is an opportunity. When we look at God's giving to us of much, whether it's, and I'm not just talking about financial gifts, but, but perhaps a blessing of a promotion or a blessing or whatever, we look at all of those things, as we see that, I think too quickly our first thought is, wow, God completely blessed me, now I'll enjoy all that he gave me. Maybe. Or, our Father is working in you, and one of the fine-tuning machines that he uses in our life is he gives us wealth in order that we may not love the wealth, but by our wealth show him we love him. That's what a sacrifice is. In the Old Testament, when you see the Old Testament animal sacrifices, the issue is, number one, there's no remission of sins by the blood of bulls and goats, so there's no salvation in it. But in the blood is the life. They're giving the life of an animal. At that time, animal, that currency, was extremely a big part of their wealth, of their life. Their herds, the size of their herds, indicated how wealthy they were. So they took the best of their herd. They sacrificed it unto the Lord to say, Lord, nothing I own is of greater value than you. You reign supreme. You are most glorious. And all that I have is yours. And so it's interesting, in chapter 12 of Genesis, earlier we saw that there was great wealth gained by Abram and Lot. If you look at chapter 12, verse 14, I'll start. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and Remember, this is Sarai, and Sarai is about to lie, so on and so forth. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, male donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. 
Now, some argue that some of those animals that he gained there in Egypt was part of the dowry Pharaoh was giving to him in order to take Sarai. So some folks debate a little bit whether this was all the stuff he had when he showed up in Egypt or if this is all the stuff he gained in Egypt. I'm not going to argue about that this morning. I just simply say he's got lots of stuff as he leaves Egypt. Take him, let him go, and let him take everything he's got. Now, it's interesting to me, beloved, what Abram does after he leaves Egypt, after this interesting spat with Pharaoh. Abram leaves with Sarai, with Lot, with the servants, with all of their herds and everything they have, and they're going to go back to where they were. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, going south. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. You can find that in earlier chapters. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And he's going back for a particular reason. Notice, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so after the issues in Egypt, after he goes into Egypt, he tells Sarai, lie, half-truth, which is a lie, tell Pharaoh that you're my sister, so that way they deal well with me, and we'll get out of here and be safe. She does that. It doesn't go well. Pharaoh is um, told what takes place. They're kicked out, and now he's going back. In my opinion, commentators went a little too far, some of them, in their reasoning out of the text. Because they were saying, because he screwed up so bad here, he's going to go back to where he was and worship. The text doesn't say that. You could potentially read that, but I don't want to read into the passage. That's a dangerous thing to do. All I know is that after this event in Egypt, Abram and Sarai and Lot went back to this particular location, the first place he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord, meaning he gave a sacrifice, meaning he was worshiping the Lord, calling on the Lord, perhaps seeking the Lord for direction. And so he returns there. My my guess, and that's all it is, is that there's something very sentimental and special about that particular altar. Um, Anytime I stand in the pulpit of the church I grew up in, always, (laughs) just, just... Touches my heart in a particular way, um, obviously, because that's, that's where I came to know Christ. That's where my pastor preached. That's where I delivered my first sermon. That, you know, all that, there's, there's pieces to that particular location that are very important to me. So as Abram returns back to this altar, makes a sacrifice, there's a return to worship is kind of how I boiled it down in my mind. Abe and Lot and Sarai went and called upon the name of the Lord. Sacrifice was made to him, and perhaps fresh direction was requested from the Lord. I'm very interested, if we were to sit down, if I had the opportunity to sit down with Abraham post-Egypt and say, how do you think that went? What do you think? And I'm not being facetious. I mean, to really ask him, what do you think about what took place in Egypt with Sarai, with Pharaoh, so on and so forth? Because I'm very curious, you guys, as he leaves there and then goes back to this place for the sake of worship, I'm curious, 
What's happening in his heart between the two places? I don't know the answer. I'm just giving you a bunch of questions. I feel bad at times when I give you a lot more questions than answers, but maybe that'll stir up some thought and you'll help me figure it out. Now look with me, if you would, at a growing controversy. So a return to a place of worship. And as he returns, there's going to be a growing controversy and it's going to cause some decision-making that is very fascinating and I think we can learn from in great ways. Verse 5, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, when Amber and I first started with Village Missions, we did a little internship, and then we went to our first church in a little town called Unity, Oregon, um, over in Eastern Oregon. A, a small little town, small little church, small little school, um, but that was our first, our first place for um, serving as a pastor with, with Village Missions. It was also the place that showed me that water wars are not only in Western movies. You know what I mean by water wars? Where there's water and there's two pieces of land and there's, the people can be at odds about where the water's coming, how much water they get, if their animals are cared for. And so let me put this in the concrete a little bit because we may read this and go, those silly herdsmen, well, they've got a job to do. Their livelihood is based on this job. They're being paid by Lot and Abram. They know that they're going to be very displeasing to their boss if they come back and they say, I'm sorry, boss, but uh, a bunch of your herd have died because of lack of water and lack of food. And so what happens? Well, they start to bicker. They start to fight with one another because there's not enough land. Now, at that same time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are both in the land as well, telling us that this, this is a growing populated area, and no doubt they have herds. They're not necessarily the best of friends. There's enemies here. This is a sticky situation, and now what's going to happen? If you've ever seen the movie um, uh, Chisholm, which, sure, everyone here has seen the movie Chisholm, and I can tell by your silence and blank stares, you've all seen the movie Chisholm. It's a movie very much about this same concept where two cattle barons are fighting with one another over what's happening with their land. That may not strike us in the same way that it would somebody who raises those herds, but anybody who's dealt with livestock, who's in charge of property, knows exactly what it is to try to take good care of that which you own. And so before we get a little too... Um, judgmental, that this is silly, it's not that silly, that they would have a difficult time and that this could actually rise to a fever pitch where they're actually fighting over it. And like what would happen in our own day, those who are the hired hands taking care of the herds eventually are going to come to the owner and say, you got to fix this problem. Your nephew's herdsmen are doing a poor job. Not only that, there's no space for his stuff. Deal with it. Now, remember this guy said at this time, Abraham was most likely, most probably, the leader of this clan. He's, probably, he's older than Lot, probably has more finances than Lot. 
he is the, the senior, senior partner, if you will, of this whole piece of property. If anybody could come to another person and say, I'm taking what I want, and you can have the leftovers, Abram would have that place. It would just make sense. You're the senior partner, you decide, and then you tell Lot where you're going to go. Now, the, the hinge of the text, and I, I, what I mean by that is the hinge that this entire passage turns on and that this message is based on is that Abram does something opposite of what would naturally come to mind. What would naturally come to mind is Abraham comes to Lot and says, well, I don't know if you remember, but I'm in charge, and I've chosen the Jordan Valley. It's gorgeous. I'm giving you some of the rocky territory. You can make good Lot. See ya. Don't forget who the uncle is. But instead, look what Abram does, you guys. It's it's a very interesting response to this. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Now, this is amazing to me, this kind of response, because it's not natural. It's supernatural. The natural response, if you take a peek into our world and look at the world, and by the way, maybe you missed me on this, what I mean by natural is I mean spiritually dead, unsaved. What does an unsaved person, how does their mind naturally work? What is in my sinful nature? How do I respond to this kind of a a controversy? The natural thing would be for Abram to come and respond by saying, I've selected what property I'm getting, and I'm leaving this property to you. Rather, he comes in a humble, submissive spirit to his nephew and says, you get first pick, and whatever is given to me will be satisfactory, and I'll be happy with that. Now, guys, I grew up with four siblings. I have, three older, I, have, I have three older brothers, and I have a younger sister. A rule in our home, still is when we get together, whoever eats fastest eats most. <clears throat> and this concept of, no, you go ahead, I'll wait, is, is just so contrary to the sinful nature. Now we say, well, Dan, are you, are you putting a little too much heat on that? I just encourage you to look at our world right now and look at the outrage for what we all deserve, quote-unquote. Look at the looting. Look at the rioting. Look at the anger. Look at the rage around you, beloved, in our world right now. And you tell me, is it natural for somebody to humble himself and say, by all means, you go first? No, no, that's supernatural. Now, I plan on twisting that knife later, so just keep it there for a sec. Coming back to the passage, here's the question. Okay, how does he respond like that? What's in Abram, 
so that he's capable of responding like that to this situation? What, what, would, he, what, would, what would enable a man to, to respond like that? When, when the, the herdsmen are fighting, they see all the land, and Abram is looking at all that land with Lot, and for Abram to bow before Lot, give Lot first pick, and to submit to whatever you choose, Lot, is fine for me. Is it A, trust in Lot, or B, trust in God? I believe it's B. I don't think Abraham was bluffing. I don't think Abraham was like, well, I know my nephew will choose the right way. He doesn't, by the way. No, I think what is at the heart of this, and the reason I would argue for this, I think the force of this comes from the fact of Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12 in reference to the character of Abram. Now, what I mean by that, this is a man who's picked up everything, picked up his family, left that which was normal to go to a land that he has no idea where it is, and God told him, I'll show you when you get there. He's been promised you will have a great nation come from you and your wife who's incapable of having children. And by faith, he picks up everything and moves to go see. Now, I can already hear the naysayers, because the naysayers are going to say, yeah, but Danny just told his wife to lie, to save his own skin. What does that prove? If you pinch him, he'd say, ow, he's human. I argue that this is a man of faith. This is a man who is walking in faith, who truly trusts the Lord and made a mistake. And if you're interested what that looks like, I will buy all of us a mirror. And then we would see, okay, no, wait a second. All that proves is Abraham is a human being trusting in the Lord, justified by faith, righteous by faith, following God. And so how do you put Genesis chapter 12, the second half of that chapter, along with chapter 13 and the first part of chapter 12? Beloved, what's going on there is a true man following God who still is struggling. Just like you, just like me, no different. But in this moment, the case, I would argue, is that the way Abraham is capable of saying, no, Lot, you choose what you will, and I'll take what is given, is not because he trusts Lot, but because he's completely in trust, following in trust of the Lord's word. God said, you go, I'll show you the land, I'll give you a people, I will accomplish this. If God is the one who sovereignly provides a generous spirit will eventually take place in that individual. And so what does Lot do? Now, this is what's so fascinating to me, because there's a contrast here, okay? There's a contrast between the two characters of the two men. Wouldn't it have been fascinating if it would have said, and Lot responded by saying, oh, Abraham, Abraham, I could not do that. You select yours, and then I'll pick mine. No, instead, he goes, well, let me take a look. And he starts looking at the property. Listen to this, guys. This is, this is very interesting and very natural. Verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the, of the Lord, 
I believe that's a pointing back to the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of an interesting point and needed point. So Lot chose for himself, please notice, not his family, but just Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, stop at verse 12. So we see what's going on, right? Tracking with the story. A great controversy. Abram is banking on the promises of, it, of, of God. Okay, God said he's going to accomplish this. I trust him in that. So I'm going to submit myself. And Lot, since I'm trusting in God and his provision, his care, he'll take good care of me. Go ahead. And Lot's response and I don't want to be too harsh on Lot, but Lot's response basically is, since I need to trust myself, I better pick the best of the land so that way I'm well cared for by my good choice and by my own ownings, my property. One's walking by sight, the other one's walking by faith. Abraham, by faith, took a step back, let Lot choose what he wanted because he trusted in the promise of God and trusted in the sovereign care of the Lord. Lot trusted in his sight. What I mean by that is he trusted in what made sense to him regardless of God's promises, regardless of God's protection, and chose the better of the two. Now, here's the sticking point, you guys. Track with me here. I'm going to do just a quick little application to our own day. Far too often, we attest our ease and comfort and happiness with God's provision. Okay, you tracking with me on that? We far too quickly attest that ease and comfort and wealth is a provision from the Lord, to which I respond, it is, sometimes. What you do with it will indicate much. The fact is, God, by his grace, brings you suffering at times. And we can embrace that, see it for what it is, believe it from the text of Scripture, or not. This is where the health, wealth, prosperity gospel teachers in our own day are completely out to lunch theologically. To make the case that God gives blessing when you have enough faith and you do the right thing as a Christian, and when you do the wrong thing, you're poor and you're sick. So more obedience, more money, and more health. I'm in. You know what happens? This is the sad part. People walk in faithful obedience to the Lord and they get sick and they suffer. And these foolish preachers tell them it's because you didn't have enough faith. So then they suffer more because they're thinking, I'm not trusting God enough in my suffering because of this throwaway theology, this garbage theology. So here's Lot 
with the Jordan Valley and all of its beauty, thinking, and perhaps Lot's thought was, God really blessed me. Well, look at the text real quick. Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now we're told Lot, at first, pitches his tent outside of Sodom. But in a few chapters later, we're going to see he's actually right in the midst of Sodom. This is where the cities are. This is where the lights are. This is the beauty, and it looks like blessing. But, beloved, Lot will go there, and he will endure the worst part of his life in what he's about to endure in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so is it possible, ponder this thought with me for just a second, is it possible that in the midst of our ease and comfort, we are walking in disobedience to the Lord? And simultaneously saying, God's blessed me. See, this is why it's so tricky, beloved, is that when we walk in disobedience to the Lord, and we still gain the world's goods, we play this silly trick in our own heads that, no, I'm actually walking in obedience. I've got to, this has got to be obeying God, otherwise I wouldn't be rich. I wouldn't be healthy. God wouldn't be blessing me like this. You've, I've heard this in the past with, with different pastors who are in the midst of a secret sin that they're concealing, and they say, but the church is growing. Financially, we're stable. The church loves me and loves my family. How could this be wrong with God's blessing coming out everywhere? Well, the fact is, you being rich doesn't dictate whether God's pleased or not. What does dictate whether he's pleased or not? The truth of his word is what dictates that. And when we walk in obedience to his word, we're walking in obedience to his word. And when we're not walking in obedience to his word and we're rich, you're still walking in disobedience to his word. This prosperity gospel, you guys, it's something that I warn you about, and I know that we all know, and we hear about it. We know that's heresy, that's wrong, filthy doctrine, and yet our own hearts can get tied up in it from a sideway corner that we did not see coming. We can become Job's friends where we see somebody suffer and we go, I wonder what sin they're hiding. You don't know. Don't even know if there is a sin. And so simultaneously, as Lot chooses this beautiful piece of property, he is about to walk right into a horrific place. Please notice the wording in verse 13. Now, I believe with all my heart that when we talk about sin and we ask the question, someone asks the question, what sins are offensive to God and what sins are not offensive to him? The answer is all sin is offensive to him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One sin, two sin, three sin, that's not the issue. You are in sin apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Okay, so track that with me. That being said, 
there's emphasis in the text that's really interesting to me. If you look at verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners. What's a not so great sinner? I, I, I don't know. It says great sinners against the Lord in, in the English Standard Version. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, I have a really tough time anytime somebody uses the terms, this person's a real bad sinner, as opposed to a real good sinner. But the word of God specifically says these are great sinners against the Lord. Is their sin worse than my sin? I I think you have a difficulty arguing that from the text of Scripture. But from this passage, it does seem to appear what he's getting across is where Lot chose to go is a horrific place. And we're going to see how horrific in a few weeks, the sin of homosexuality that is just rampant and crystal clear in in the coming weeks. But here it says, great sinners against the Lord. So, beloved, think this through with me, okay? Isn't it fascinating? Abraham says, I trust God's provision. He'll give me what he will give me. And I trust his sovereignty in that. So, Lot, I have a generous spirit. My nephew, you pick what you want to pick. And Lot looks around and he goes, that's gorgeous. I want it. And he heads straight into a pit of great sin. Now, different folks argued, was Lot aware of the greatness of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah prior to going there, prior to choosing it? I'm not going to get into that. I don't see that in the passage one way or the other necessarily. But regardless, I want you to recognize Lot chose what was appealing to his eyes, to his senses. What is appealing to you may not be what God's called you to go and receive. And because Abram truly trusted in God's sovereign care, it gave him the spirit of calm and the spirit of generosity to step back and wait upon the Lord. Look at verse 14. Plug in right along. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And so here's this very fascinating turn of events, is it not? Where Abram steps back and says, all right, I trust the Lord's sovereignty. There's a big fight among our herdsmen. We've got all of these things that are getting between us, a lot of possessions, a lot of animals. So you choose, Lot chooses, and as soon as Lot leaves, the Lord comes and restates the promise he made that kicked off this whole thing. In a sense, guys, what he's doing, God is restating his promise. He's restating his love for Abram. He's restating the the blessing that he is going to be pouring out on him. And you see the two that we've already seen before. I will give you this land, and I will give you a nation that comes from you. I will give you offspring. 
For all, verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Ha <laughs> ha! Isn't that interesting that he responds in worship when God restates his promise to him? So, in an act of faithfulness, Abram trusted in the Lord, and after that, the Lord says, in a sense, okay, so don't, don't read too much of this, but just track with me. In a sense, the Lord is saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You walked in faith to my promise, and now God restates to him the same promise And Abram responds back with a fresh altar, a fresh sacrifice, and a heart filled with worship. I'm out of time, so let me wrap this up. How does the passage speak to you and to your heart? Listen to this quote. Alexander McLaren said this a long time ago. The less of our energies are consumed in asserting ourselves and scrambling for our rights and cutting in before other people so as to get the best places for ourselves, the more we shall have to spare for better things. And the more we live in the future and leave God to order our ways, the more shall our souls be wrapped in perfect peace. Guys, if there's a word that I think embodies Abram's demeanor in this passage, he's at ease. He's at peace because he's completely settled in his trust in the Lord's care and provision. So here's the question Dan posed to his own heart. Do I make decisions by faith in God's word? What or who am I relying on for care and for protection? Do I really believe God's sovereign? In what he said he would do in my life, do I really believe that? And I'll end with this statement. True trust in God as the great provider will result in a generous spirit and a calm mind. And I'll just remind you, it's all his anyways. It wasn't yours the whole time. So why would we not trust him with his own things? Father, thank you for your word. I pray as...